your attention to Romans chapter 3 this morning. Um, Each Sunday we're taking a different chapter, and so today is chapter 3. And um, I'm going to endeavor to try to be a little shorter than I was last Sunday. I think last Sunday was about one hour, so we'll see if we can't make it 55 minutes today. Um, But, uh, amen. We'll, We'll try. Happy birthday, David. Um, anybody else have a birthday? Marta, you have a birthday. Awesome. Anybody else want to have a birthday? Uh, amen, amen. Romans chapter 3. Father, we're so grateful. I thank you for your word. What an amazing compilation of inspiration of your Holy Spirit that teaches us, strengthens us, encourages us, directs us, gives us information, understanding, revelation. Help us this morning as we listen. Help us as we share. Lord, we all need you today. We're conscious of the fact that in the world we live in today, we need supernatural wisdom, understanding, We need you to reveal to us your word, its truth, how we can live it, how we can practice it, how we can share it. The Lord help us as we endeavor to live above the circumstances of our world and live in the realm of the supernatural understanding of your grace and mercy. We thank you in advance for that which you want to share with us this morning. By your spirit to each one, in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 3, Paul is making some closing arguments of God's case against humanity. And the purpose of Romans chapter 3, or one of them at least, seems to, to show that everybody needs Jesus Christ. We all need salvation. As a review, we've looked at the fact that God reveals himself to all men through nature, through our conscience, to the Jews, through the law. As a result, we found that everybody's responsible. Nobody's without excuse. Because God has revealed himself, we're accountable to him. Both Jews and Gentiles are responsible and guilty before God. Chapter 2, we looked at the fact that God judges people. We're not to judge anybody. We looked at seven reasons why we're not to judge. And so now Paul is building this case and takes different groups in our world And he shows us why each group is guilty. It's kind of, the first part of Romans chapter 3 is kind of the bad news. You know, it's got the bad news, good news. Like it starts with the bad news, we're all guilty, it ends with some good news. And then into chapter 4 and onward, we're going to see even more about the great news that uh, the Apostle shares with us. But imagine this morning that we're in a courtroom and uh, Paul is the prosecuting attorney. And he's making the case that everybody in the world has done something wrong in their life and will therefore be judged and they need a savior. Paul does what any good lawyer would do. When a lawyer comes to the conclusion of a case, he usually does three things. He first tries to anticipate the questions that are in the minds of the jurors. And he answers them in advance. And so he sees the jury thinking, what about this? What about that? So Paul makes his closing arguments in the first nine verses. And then he brings in the supporting evidence. He brings in some testimonies, some quotations from the Old Testament in support of what he's doing. And then after that, he summarizes his conclusion and asks for a verdict. So it's an amazing story, a courtroom drama, as the Apostle Paul is presenting to the Romans... The case that God has basically against humanity. In the first part of chapter 3, Paul asks some questions and he gives some answers. And so we're going to look at the objections that Paul answers and the questions. And there's five questions and there's five answers. Paul loved to use questions and answers as a teaching tool. In the synagogue setting, it was perfectly normal for the teacher to speak and then to say, are there any questions? That'd be a little bit different in our culture, wouldn't it be? where we'd preach for a while and we'd say, are there any questions? And we'd be there for the rest of the day 
answering questions or whatever. But in that setting, that's what they did. And he'd open it up. And Paul, because he's writing to the Romans, he imagines a dialogue and here, and he asks the questions himself, and then he answers them himself. You might say he's the first guy in the Bible who was talking to himself. But he asks the questions, and then he answers the question. So this section we're going to look at is, without a doubt, probably the most difficult section in Romans to understand. But it's also one of the most difficult sections in the entire Bible. If you'll understand that Paul is asking questions, and then he's answering them himself, it's going to make a little more sense to you. So, Paul is the prosecuting attorney. The opposition stands up and says, I object. The background for these questions are in the previous chapter, in chapter 2. Paul had just told the Jews that their religion will not get them to heaven. In fact, he says, nobody's religion will get you to heaven. He says, you're not going to make it because of your race, your religion, or your ritual. It's as though Paul stands face-to-face with some hecklers. I don't know if any of you saw the video that's kind of gone viral about um, the politician, um, a Sikh, who was giving a presentation to people, and, and there was this heckler standing right, she's standing right in front of his face, just like going at it. And uh, just, I mean, I'd have been totally embarrassed to be related to that person. But anyway, a heckler. And so Paul is imagining these hecklers right here in this chapter. And uh, so he, he's talking here, and he, he's sharing with them, and it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing chapter. The background for these questions in that previous chapter, he just told the Jews that religion is going to get them, nothing's going to get them to heaven. And so these Jews keep coming up with questions. And uh, they've got things they want to ask him. And so Paul answers these questions in the first nine verses. Now understand, Paul is anticipating their questions. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. What an advantage. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And there he says, I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so... How could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. So the first question that the Apostle Paul is asking here is a question regarding the Jews' uniqueness. He says, what advantage is there then in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Paul is saying, some of you are thinking, why be religious? If working hard, going to church, and being circumcised, and keeping the law, and serving the Jewish holidays won't get me into heaven... Why should I even do it? Is there any advantage in being a Jew over being a pagan if we're all guilty? And Paul answers in verse 2. Much in every way, he says. He says, it's a great privilege to be a Jew. If you're Jewish here this morning, you ought to be proud of it. There is advantage to it. Now, what's the advantage? First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now get this, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. The Greek word for first of all means chiefly of primary importance. When Paul says first of all, it sounds like he's going to give a whole list of advantages for being a Jew. And he gives one. Why? He's saying this is the most important one. Now he lists in chapter 9, he lists some other advantages. But here, 
the most important one. He's saying that the greatest thing the Jews had going for them was that God had given them his word. Now, we really need to let that sink in. More than all the rituals, more than all the other things, God had given them his word. The best thing they had going for them was the Old Testament. First five books. This is the Jews' great distinction. God told them, this is the word, and it's been entrusted to you. Now, to show the importance of the word, you can read in Exodus chapter 25, why did God give them the word? The first reason that God gave the Jews the word was to care for it and protect it. It is incredible when you think about it. We as Christians have a lot to thank the Jews for because the Jews preserved the Bible for th- or at least five books for thousands and thousands of years. The word of God had been preserved through centuries and centuries because one thing the Jews did do was take care of the word that was entrusted to them. What's the Ark of the Covenant? We know about that in the Old Testament, right? That was the box that was encrusted with gold inside and out. And the Jews were to keep the word of God in that box. And God gave specific instructions in Exodus 25 for the making of the Ark. He said, have them make a chest of acacia wood. Two, this is not in your outline or on the screen, but make them a chest of acacia wood two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Make gold rings and fasten them on the four sides. Make poles that are to go through these rings, and they're never to be removed. Now, the reason why the ark was so sacred, they were never to even touch it. Why? It contained the word of God. Now, think about this. The two tables of the Ten Commandments were actually put in the ark. Verse 16 of 25 says, And put in the ark the testimony which I will give you, the word of God, and place the cover on the top of the ark. What was special about the ark was that what was inside of it. The word was given to the Jews from God, and they were to take care of it. Later, God told Solomon to build a temple, an enormous elaborate temple. Why? To hold the ark which held the word of God, the commandments. Now later on, we know that Moses uh, wrote the five books. It was important. God says, I'm giving the Jews the word to take care of it and to protect it so that down through the ages, people will have it. That was part of the Jewish privilege talked about in verse 2. And there were two parts to this entrustment. The second thing the Jews were supposed to do with the word of God was they were to share the word of God. The word of God is never given to us to to hold it to ourselves. None of us. Nor to the Jews. The Jews were to be missionaries to the rest of the world. God did not make them the chosen nation so they could say, we got it and you don't. That wasn't why he called them the chosen nation. He didn't make them to be a special group so they could say, we're the in crowd, everybody else forget it. He made them to be evangelists to the world. They were to take the word of God and share it. But did they do that? No. The Jews did one of the two things God gave them the word for. They took care of it, preserved it, but they didn't share it. Friends, some of us are exactly the same. We have the word. Some of it's written on our hearts. Some of it's in a book in the corner. Some of it's on our smartphones. We have it. God has given us the same responsibility. Not only do we protect the word, but we're to share the word. We're to be involved in the very same way. So Paul says you have an advantage, yes, the word of God, but you also have a responsibility. The second question Paul deals with is in the next verse. The first is about the Jews' uniqueness. The second is about God's faithfulness. Paul imagines some of them saying in verse 3, he says, what if some of them did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Paul is saying that there are obviously some Jews who were not faithful to God. The whole Old Testament talks about that. There were some who were and some who weren't. And the question could be asked several ways. Will God give up on the Jewish nation because some of them were unfaithful? Will God rescind all of his promises to the Jews because they didn't follow him? 
Does the Jews' unfaithfulness cancel God's promises to them? Did God make promises to the Jews? Sure, the Old Testament full of them. Did the Jews keep their part of the bargain? No. Then can God break his promises, they're asking? If the Jews didn't keep theirs, can God then break his? Paul says in verse 4, not at all. Let God be true and every man be a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right in your words and prevailing in your judging. The question Paul asks now is, since the Jews did not follow God's word completely, does that mean that all the precious promises of God that God made to them, that God doesn't have to keep them anymore? Paul says, no, not at all. That's your favorite expression of the Apostle Paul. Not at all, not at all, not at all. It's used 13 times in Paul's writings, nine times in the book of Romans. When somebody repeats something that many times, you know that they're trying to make a point. The literal translation of that is, no, 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 no. It means, God forbid... It's the strongest statement you can make in the Greek language. It means absolutely not. Nana. No. God does not break his promises even when our performance doesn't warrant it. And that's good news. There are some people questioning God's faithfulness. They're saying, since the Jews were unfaithful to God, does that mean that God can now be unfaithful to the Jews? And he doesn't have to keep all the promises he made to them. Paul says, not at all. Even if every person in the world is a liar, God is true. God is true. In the Bible, there's two kinds of promises. There are conditional promises and unconditional. Conditional promises are promises that say, if you do this, then God will do this. Ask and it shall be given. The condition is ask and the promise is it will be given. It doesn't say, if you don't ask, he's going to give it anyway. There's a condition. How about whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? The condition, call on the name of the Lord. If you do your part, God does his part. 2 Chronicles 7.14, we know it well. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. I just thought of it. I apologize, Freddie, and to the Spanish folks. I didn't print out the verses in Spanish. And uh, you're translating up there, and I, I just thought of it now, and I forgot. I'm sorry. But there's a promise, and there's a premise. Those are conditional promises. Also in the Bible, many promises that are totally unconditional, whether we do what's right or not. These are the promises that Paul is talking about here. There are some promises to the Jews that God made regardless of what they did. For instance, God promised the Jews that eventually they would have a Messiah. Did the Jews deserve a Messiah? Were they faithful all through the years of the Old Testament? They weren't. But did God give them a Messiah anyway? Sure. Even though he knew that they were going to reject him, he sent the Messiah anyway. That was an unconditional promise. The Bible also says that one day... Jesus Christ is going to come back. That's a promise. It's unconditional. It doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do. That promise is not conditioned upon you. That's what Paul's talking about here. Folks, that day is coming soon. Our world can't take much more. Amen? I mean, it is like groaning. If you're not ready to, to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, I suggest today is a good day to get ready. He's saying, some of you are saying that since the Jews have blown it, then God can forget everything he's promised to them. Paul says, no way. God's promises are based on his character. Now get this. God's promises are based on his character, not on your performance. Isn't that good news? He's got unconditional promises based on his character, not upon our... um, Ability to perform. He's saying here, some of you are saying that since the Jews have blown it, God can forget it. Paul says no. No, no, no. Aren't you glad that some of God's promises aren't based on how you perform? I sure am. Paul bases his answer out of an Old Testament reference that is on your outline, Psalm 89, where he says, 
If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commandment, I will punish their sin with a rod and their iniquity floggings, but notice here, but I will not take my love from them. You might do wrong. God may punish and forgive and whatever, but he will not remove his love from us. I'm so thankful. God is saying that even though the Jewish nation has done what I told them, has not done what I told them to do, I still love them, and I still fulfill the promises that I made to them. We see the faithfulness of God in the nation of Israel. That ought to be an encouragement to all of us. One of the reasons why these promises in the Bible ought to be so precious to us is because they're absolutely trustworthy. You can count on the promises of God. He will not, he can't fail. He can't. God will never go against his word. God says it, and it will happen. So Paul is saying that God is still not through with Israel. He's not through with them today. He's working with the church today, and God still has a plan for Israel. And he still has promises to keep and promises to fulfill. First question was regarding the Jews' uniqueness, regarding God's faithfulness, secondly, and thirdly, regarding God's righteousness. Verse 5. If our righteousness brings out God's righteousness. Now this, this passage is, is perhaps the hardest passage in Romans to understand in the Greek and in the English. Paul's talking about faulty logic. And he's going to point out that it doesn't make sense, but it was a common excuse the Jews were giving in his time. He says, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And I'm using a human argument, he says. Living Bible says it this way. But some say our breaking faith with God is good. Our sins serve a good purpose. For people will notice how good God is when we see how bad we are. It is fair then for him to punish us when our sins are... Is it fair for him to punish us when our sins are helping him? That's the way some people talk. Philip's translation puts it this way. But if our wickedness advertises the goodness of God, do we feel that God is being unfair to punish us in return? And I'm using a human tit-for-tat argument. Paul's, what's Paul saying? He's saying that some people there are saying, he's in this courtroom drama, you've just said that God is faithful to us even when we're unfaithful to him. Therefore, it seems, human logic, that when I sin and God forgives me, And when I sin more, and God forgives me more, then every time I sin, it makes God look good because it shows how forgiving he is. Incredible logic, right? Therefore, God shouldn't be upset with me when I sin because my sin actually makes God look great. If our sin makes God, uh, you know, makes God look more Gracious, why should we be judged for it, they're saying. Why should he condemn us? Because actually we're doing God a favor. By our sin, God shows what a great guy he is, so we ought to thank us for our sin. And that's the logic in this sentence. And then Paul says in parentheses, I'm using a human argument. This is human logic, and sometimes human logic is really, really insane. He's realizing you you could twist what he was saying and that people were saying that Jews' unfaithfulness actually reinforces God's faithfulness. Let me illustrate this with this illustration. A guy, fairly newly married, and I don't know what's going on in their their marriage relationship, but he goes and commits adultery. He doesn't just commit adultery once. He repeats it over and over and over again. His wife remains faithful to him. So the husband comes into the wife and says, my unfaithfulness just makes you look better because you're staying faithful to me even though I'm unfaithful to you and it shows what a great lady you are. So one day his wife finally says, I've had it. I'm not going to take this anymore. That's all I'm going to put up with. And the husband says, what? Why are you mad at me? My unfaithfulness just shows your patience in fact. Instead of being upset, you ought to thank me for my adultery because it shows what a great person you are. Does that make sense? That's what the Romans were saying about God. Our sin, and he forgives us, makes God look good. So if we sin more, and he forgives us, makes him look better. 
human logic. I wonder if there's any people like that today. And Paul is destroying this. And in this court case, he's taking every single objection that the Jews are bringing up, and he's blowing them out of the water. It is distorted logic. Verse 5 is his answer. Is that the right way to think about it? Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Friends, if God doesn't have any standards, and he lets everybody get away with anything, how can he be fair if he doesn't have any standards? If sin results in doing good, then God can't judge anybody because everybody will be doing good every time they sinned. He has to judge. To be righteous and faithful, he has to. Question four is regarding God's truthfulness. Verse seven. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Now this is kind of an extension of the previous one. Paul is saying, Let's take your logic a step further. If all the bad things I do make God happy because it gives him the chance to show his grace, then why should God condemn me? If the truth of God has increased through my sin, then why am I still judged? Can I be blamed for something that brings glory to God? How could God call me a sinner if my sin shows what a forgiving person he is? Now, Paul is somewhat of an intellectual giant, a genius He uses what philosophers call, you take it to its logical, illogical conclusion. Push it to the extreme and show how how silly it really is. Verse 8, he says, Why not say as we're being slandered as purposed to be saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. He's saying, if every time I sin, it brings more glory to God because it shows what a forgiving person he is, then let's live it up. Let's gross out on evil so God can be super forgiving. Does that make any sense? No. Paul is saying God does not need our evil to contrast his goodness. That's cheap grace. It's basically saying it doesn't matter what you do as long as you believe the right thing. Friends, there's a lot of people going to church and believing the right things, but their lifestyle, they may live for the Lord on Sunday, and live for the devil the rest of the week. That's the way a lot of people seem to be. And Paul is saying, you don't want to go out and sin more to prove what a gracious God he is. Another illustration. For instance, have, anybody, have you ever had strep throat? Anybody here? Say you've got a case of strep throat. It's, 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 not, it's not a fun thing. So we get strep throat, we go to the doctor, and he says, I have a wonder drug. You just have a minor case of strep throat. This drug can wipe out your strep throat almost immediately. But you say to the doctor, well, doc, let's just wait a few days. Let's pray that I get a super severe strep throat so that it will really demonstrate how powerful your wonder drug is. That's the same kind of logic. Like, what? A lot of people do that with God. They think that God is some old grandfather up in the sky who's loving, but he's absolutely harmless. Like you take your kids to grandpa's house and grandma's house, and he or she, they're rocking in their chair, gumming their teeth, and you say, we'll be back in a little while, and we'll just leave the kids, and the kids tear up the house. The grandparents are sitting there smiling, and the kids think, Grandma and grandpa must love this. So they do it even more. Because there's such a pushover and they won't stop them. A lot of people think God is just like that. He's a pushover. He's forgiving. No worry. We can live like we want. He'll forgive us. I know the choice that I'm making is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway because I know that God will forgive me. That can be used in all kinds of instances. You know what I want to say to that person who believes that? I want to say, what kind of a fool do you think God is? Don't you think he sees through that logic? Do you think a God would let you get away with that? A God who would let you get away with that is worthy to be worshipped? 
Is that kind of a God worthy? Forgiveness is not a license to sin. Never confuse forgiveness with approval. They're two totally totally different things. Forgiveness from God does not mean approval. Can a parent forgive a child for doing something wrong and still let them reap the consequences of their behavior? Maybe you stole some candy at the store and your parents found out and they made you pay for it. Even though you were forgiven. You can go out and get your life messed up in certain kind of lifestyle and ask God to forgive you, but you will still reap what you sown. Still. The consequences are still there. Prime example, David goes out and sins with Bathsheba. Did God forgive him when he repented? Absolutely. Was there consequences? Yes, the child died. There's still consequences, but God forgives. Forgiveness and approval are two different things. Paul is saying, don't presume on the grace of God. Some people were actually reporting that Paul was teaching, uh, you know, that grace, you know, you can just do whatever you want. And um, Paul says, I've been slandered, I've been insulted. They're saying that I'm encouraging loose living. Anytime you get a pastor or preacher who teaches on grace, that person's always going to be misrepresented by somebody as believing in loose living. So are talking about grace and God's grace. Oh, he's talking about loose living now. No, we're not. It always happens. Paul responds to that attitude. It was the last thing he said in verse 8. He said, their condemnation is deserved. A person who has those kinds of thoughts, if you think you can go out and sin and get away with it and ask God to forgive you, you get what you deserve. Last question, verse 9. Paul, as this prosecuting attorney makes his closing arguments, he says, what shall we conclude then? Are we, Paul's fellow Jews, any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that all Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. So the last question here, though, man's sinfulness. Paul says, are we any better? Referring to his own Jewishness? No. Some people think, from verse 1, that the Jews have an advantage. Paul does say they have an advantage. He doesn't say they're better. There's a difference. They do have an advantage. They have the word of God, but they're not better. Notice Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul, in these verses, and they're all quotations, and you've got them listed in your outline where he's quoting from Old Testament passages, and you can look them up yourself. He brings in the supporting testimony, and since he's speaking to Jews, he uses their own Old Testament to reinforce his case. And he quotes... Five Old Testament passages. Five Old Testament passages, and he puts them together, and he writes sort of like this poem. And he writes it to the Romans. And the background of this approach is that the rabbis in Jewish history used a teaching method where they would take verses from a variety of sources in the Bible, and they'd put them together and present an argument from it, much like a topical sermon. Paul seems to have always taught using topical sermons taking verses from different places, bringing them together to make a conclusion. But in these verses, Paul has a number of statements. Verse 10 to 12 actually comes from Psalm 14, verse 1 to 3, where he says, there's no one righteous, not even one. In other words, there's universal sin. Nobody bats a thousand. All races, all religions, all nationalities, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Many people seek the things that God offers, but they don't seek God. Oh, they seek blessings, they seek healing, they seek help, they seek wisdom, they seek, but do they seek God? Jesus didn't say, I came to earth to be found. He said, I came to earth to seek and to save 
that which is lost. Friends, I remember years ago, there was this campaign, I found it. Remember, I don't know if you, any of you remember way back then, but about finding Jesus Christ. Friends, we don't find Jesus. He finds us. He finds us. He's the one. He says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. You don't read in the scriptures where the sheep went looking for the shepherd. The shepherd went looking for the one that was lost. And I want to say, if you don't know Jesus Christ, he's looking for you. And it started at the cross. There he paid the price. And he's looking to seek and to save the lost. We've all turned our own way. Everybody's doing their own thing. And he says they've all together become worthless. The word worthless in the Greek was originally used for sour milk. How many of you love to smell sour milk? Yuck, it stinks. Have you ever had a thermos of milk and left it for a few days? Nothing stinks stinks worse than sour milk. It's useless. He's saying here, sin wastes us. It's useless. Verse 13 is a quote from Psalm 5.9. Their throat are open graves. Their tongue practices deceit. Next couple of verses, he's going to talk about our speech. Our speech gives our sinfulness away. When you go to the doctor who wants to check your health, he's open your mouth and he sticks this uh, big popsicle stick on your tongue and looks down there. Um, you stick out your tongue, looking down your throat. They can tell what's wrong and if there's something drastically wrong with you. God says he can do it spiritually. So God says to you and me, stick out your tongue. Let me see what you've been saying. Huh? Let me see what you've been saying. Let me see what you've been talking about. And I can tell what you're like. What you say is what's inside of you. Out of the heart a man speaks. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Quote from Psalm 140 verse 3. Where it says the tongues are loaded with lies. Everything they say has the sting and poison of deadly snakes. Vipers have a sack in the back of their mouth. They can kill people by their mouth. Can human beings kill people with their mouth? Yeah. We can strike at each other with our words. Verse 14, he says, Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's from Psalm 10, verse 7. He's talking about the garbage mouth. Foul speech is an offense to God. Then he starts to describe their actions, verse 15 to verse 17. He moves from the throat and the tongue to the lips and the mouth. And then he moves to their feet. And he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way. And the way of peace they do not know. From Isaiah 59, verse 7, that says, they are violent. And as a result, their lives are filled with misery. They don't know peace. So he says it starts in the throat. Comes into the mouth, to the tongue, to the lips. And comes right down what happens with your feet finally he gives the cause in verse 18 said because there's no fear of God before their eyes the reason why we do our own thing is because we don't even let God enter our thoughts Romans chapter 3 verse 19 to verse 20 now we know that whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This seems to summarize everything Paul been building in the first three chapters of Romans. Where he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Everybody. Paul says, summing it up, I can say two truths. Number one, the whole world is accountable to God. Number two, the whole world is without excuse. Friends, none of us have an excuse. We're not going to stand before the Lord one day and say, well, my parents, my friend, none of us have an excuse. He says, every mouth will be silenced. You're going to stand before God and you'll be speechless. You'll not be able to defend yourself. You'll not be able to say, I was innocent. The whole world is accountable, and the whole world is without excuse. 
Not only were we hope, not only were we helpless, we're hopeless. Verse 20. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Paul says, no one can ever be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. No one can ever be saved by keeping the law. No one's ever been saved that way. Why was the law given? If it can't get you to heaven, why did God even give us the law? God gave us the law for two reasons. One, that we would be aware of our sin. And secondly, that it might bring us to the place of repentance and freedom. So the final verdict, Paul says, is man is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The whole world is lost. The bottom line is everybody needs to be saved. Whether you're respectable, religious, or rebellious, we're wiped out. It's a description of the doctrine of the total depravity of man. Now, between verse 20 and verse 21... It's like night and day. All of a sudden, Paul switches roles and becomes the attorney for the defense. All of a sudden, we realize that we don't have to live under condemnation. One verse, Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, if I were to ask you to define the gospel, do you think you could do it? What is the gospel? We have a description of the gospel in a capsule paragraph. Paul clarifies it. He spells it out in technical terms. It sounds technical, but it's extremely important. If we don't get what we're talking about right here, we won't understand what salvation is all about. It's that simple. And the next few verses we're going to look at in capsule form is the whole message of Jesus Christ. Donald Barnhouse said this is the most important paragraph of the Bible. Martin Luther said it's the chief point of the whole Bible. So here's an explanation of what God has done for you and me. Verse 21. But now. He's gone through all of those arguments, all the questions, all the the rebuttal, and all how we're, we're all sinners, we're all in trouble. And then he says, but now. Aren't you glad for the but nows of life? But now. A righteousness from God, apart from the law, had been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Anytime you see the word but, you ought to stop and say, it's like the word therefore. What is it therefore? Anytime you see but, it means I'm going to give you a new thought. Paul has been talking and building a case logically, step by step. He's pointed out everybody's guilty. No man is innocent. All have sinned. We all need to be saved. He'd been building his case. Now in verse 21, he says, but now, I thank God for those two words. This is a major turning point in the book of Romans. And now he's going to talk about salvation. How do I get right with God? In the past, he was building a case and it's been getting darker and darker. But now, now the light shines through. And here now he gives some great gospel words. Important theological statements of the Bible often depend on the smallest words, such as prepositions and articles. Most of the great doctrines of the Word of God revolve around a single word, such as grace, atonement, or faith. In order to understand the deeper meaning of Scripture, we have to study the specific words that were used. And correct interpretation of biblical truth depends on correct understanding of the words used to convey these truths. David said, The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver, refined in the furnace of fire, purified seven times. Proverbs as well says, every word of God is flawless. Words are important. And there's three words in this section you cannot miss. They describe the three miracles that God does for you when you're saved, born again, freed from your sin. And these words are all found here, verse 24. First word, justification. Justification. Second word, redemption. The third word, atonement. Three key words all describe what God has done for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Notice verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. 
He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, it's a lot of words. Paul gives us a detailed explanation. He says there's some things here about salvation. Nine exactly. We're going to run through them real quick. Every single phrase in these verses is important. Number one, he says, a righteousness from God. Salvation was designed by God. It wasn't somebody else. It was designed by God. Man didn't think it up. He didn't take the initiative. It wasn't his ingenuity. God thought up the whole plan of salvation that we're going to look at. Number two, salvation is unearned. A righteousness apart from the law. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. You don't get to heaven by works. You can't earn it. Not by keeping the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount. You're not saved by earning it. By working for it, it's apart from the law. In the Old Testament, there are three kinds of law. The moral law, civil law, ceremonial law. And these three kinds of laws are talked about in the first five books of the Bible. Paul says none of these are going to get you to heaven. It's apart from the law. Yes, the law is important. God has, says it's apart from the law. Thirdly, salvation is unhidden. Verse 21, it is righteousness apart from the law that had been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. It's not a secret. It's not something Paul thought up. It's not a new message. It's been around a long time. This was not an innovation by the Apostle Paul. People have been saved all throughout history. It's been made known, and the law and the prophets testify. He's talking about the Old Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter backs up what Paul says. Where Peter says, and this probably isn't on your outline either, or written down, but 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, 11. Concerning this salvation of the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances in which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he directed the suffering or pre-directed the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. He's saying the whole Bible teaches the same thing. You're saved by grace through faith. It's not something new that just happens in the New Testament. When you look at the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, it teaches that somebody, something was going to die for somebody else. All throughout Scripture. So salvation is unhidden. It's, not, it's been there from the beginning of time. Salvation is through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And when you look at this, I mean, all other religions of the world have the idea, do. The Christian life says, believe, accept, have faith. Now afterwards, there's the works of righteousness, but not to earn salvation. Conversation sometimes with Christians... And you ask somebody, or you want to find out where they are, and you say, ask them if they're Christians, they say, well, I'm trying. That's just a minute. It's like being pregnant. You either are, or you isn't. Okay? Not I'm trying. You know, we may be trying to assimilate some of the things in the Bible, but you either are a Christian, or you isn't a Christian. Got that? So, If you're the one who's been saying, I'm trying, you know, it's like talking to Megan, saying, how are you doing, Megan? I'm trying to be pregnant. No, she is. By the way, is anybody else pregnant? I love keeping those secrets. You either are or you aren't. Two mistakes people make when it comes to faith in Christ Sometimes they say, I don't have enough faith. Friends, it doesn't matter how much or how little you've got. It's not the amount. It's who your faith is in. And it's in Christ. Not how much, how little. It's who it is in. Not the size of your faith. The size of our God. You don't have to have a lot of faith. Everybody has faith. You have faith when you sat down in that chair this morning. That it would hold you up. You have faith when you got on the on Crowchild this morning. No one's going to bash into you. You have faith when you eat your cream of wheat, if that's what you eat. And your wife didn't poison it. Everybody has faith. 
It's just what you put it in. Second mistake is, sometimes people put faith in their faith. They put faith in their faith. They think their faith in their faith is going to get them to heaven. No, it's faith in a person. Jesus Christ. It's like sometimes we worship our worship rather than worship the Lord. What is our faith in? Is our faith in our faith or is it in the person of Jesus Christ? Friends, faith doesn't save you. Christ does. We need faith, but Christ does. Even the devil believes in God and he trembles. A lot of people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. From here to here. It's all in their head, but it hasn't come to reach their heart. Faith in the Greek means to trust in, to cling to, to rely on, to adhere to. Commitment is the difference. It's faith in a person, Jesus. Then he says to all who believe. It's a universal appeal. Then he says... For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Salvation is necessary for all of us. All have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin means we've missed the mark. Athletic term, an archery term. When they shoot the arrow and they miss the bullseye, they missed. They say they sinned. They missed the mark. All have missed the mark of God's standard. We've all fallen short. And that's another athletic term that literally means to fall behind in a race. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God? There's many definitions of the glory of God. But, and different scholars have different opinions on this. And kind of lean towards this one in this case here where it says the glory of God is referring to the way God made man intentionally to be. God made man intentionally in the Garden of Eden, and he made him perfect, in a perfect relationship with God. And they blew it. They sinned, and they fell short, and the glory was lost. Sinned, and they fell short. Means We all fall short of God's ideal. We all fall short of the potential that God has put into each one of us. We sin, and we lose that potential. Salvation is undeserved. You can read there in verse 26. Justified freely by his grace. And uh, so it's totally undeserved. It means without a cause. You can't do anything to earn it. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. And so there's nothing you can do to deserve it. Justified is a key word in the Bible. It literally means to declare not guilty. An easy way to remember it. Just as if I'd never Sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Not guilty. And so we find here when he says we're justified three ways. Verse 24 he says we're justified by grace. Verse 25 he says we're justified by his blood. And then he says we're justified by faith. So we're justified by grace, by his blood, and by faith. Justified is more than just forgiveness. It means this. There's absolutely no longer any case at all against you. It's wiped out. But now we've been justified. There's no case. (laughs) So when the enemy comes, he tries to bring up all the old stuff, right? But we're justified. We're just as if we never, all that stuff. There's no case against us. We're not guilty. Justified by his grace. And then number 8, verse 24, he says, Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Salvation comes through a person, Jesus. Redemption. Redemption. It means to release by paying a ransom. It was used to refer to slaves. It was used to refer as well to hostages and kidnapping um, And so it was released by paying a ransom. And the ransom was paid by Jesus Christ. Friends, salvation cost God a lot. It was expensive. It is free. But it was expensive. It was a gift, but somebody had to pay for the gift. 
Romans 3.25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Some translations use the word propitiation. NIV says sacrifice of atonement. It says was satisfied. God's judgment was satisfied. It was paid in full. Now, why did God create the plan of salvation? Why did God send Jesus Christ to do that? Two reasons. He did it to take care of the past, verse 25. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to take care of the present and the future. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies the man who has faith in Christ. Now, let me try to explain this so we don't get too confused or hopefully I don't confuse it. The word beforehand. He says, in his patience, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now, did God let people get away with sin in the Old Testament? Was God a softy in the Old Testament and all of a sudden got severe in the New Testament? He said God was patient with people in their sins in the Old Testament, but he's not anymore. He's talking about those who lived before Christ. He's referring to all the sins committed B.C., before Christ. He's saying God passed over those sins because God looked ahead and knew what Jesus Christ would do. He said, I know what's happening now, but I know who's going to pay for it. There's someone who's going to pay for them. There's a coming Messiah. He was patient when people sinned in the Old Testament because he knew Jesus would die. There was a picture in the Old Testament of sacrifice, but he knew what was coming and yes, they were getting in on this. There's, there was a coming Messiah. All the Old Testament animal sacrifices, they didn't save anybody. They were just the symbol of what was going to really happen in years later. When Jesus died, he reached all the way back to Adam and Eve. All the way back. Paid for every sin that had ever been done wrong since the beginning of the world. That took care of the past. That doesn't help us. It took care of the past. The next verse helps us. All of us who were born A.D., he said, God did this to show his justice regarding those born after Christ at the present time so as to be just as the one who justifies. Jesus was God's representative, and Jesus was man's representative. He played both sides. God is just in forgiving us. He has the reason to forgive us because of what Jesus Christ did. I'm so glad. I don't know if that explains everything. They sacrificed a lot of animals to cover sin. It was Jesus who took the sin away. It was Jesus who put the sin in a place where it never will be remembered again. It's Jesus who takes our sin away, justifies us, redeems us, paid the price, and his blood covers and is an atonement for all of our sin. The cross covers the past, the present, and the future. When Jesus died on the cross, he already died for sins you're going to commit tomorrow. Did you know that? He not only died for the ones you committed yesterday and the ones you committed today, but when Jesus died on the cross, he died for everything I'm going to do for the rest of my life. He died for the sins my kids are going to commit, their kids are going to commit. So this is a heavy, heavy section. Does that mean we don't have to ask forgiveness? Absolutely we need to. That's why the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Have any of you been recently convicted by the Holy Spirit of sin? Anybody? Nobody? Of course we're convicted of sin. This is a heavy section. It's paid past, present, and future. The consequences of salvation. And here Paul concludes. 
He says, in light of all these heavy truths, there are three consequences of salvation, verse 27 to verse 31. I'll just list the reason. There's no reason for pride. God's going to do this for you, not because you deserve it. It's a free gift. It's not because you want it. It's simply a free gift. You can't brag about it. You can't brag about how you worked your way to heaven. If people could work their way to heaven, can you imagine what heaven would be like? Everybody would have their little reason for making it to heaven. Everybody would be bragging how they got there. So it, no reason for pride. Consequence of it, there's no pride. You can't brag about your salvation because you didn't have anything. You had no other alternative. You just have to trust in Jesus. Secondly, there's no reason for prejudice. It says there's no boasting. God says, is God, God a Jews only? God loves us all. Both Jews, Gentiles, we're all saved the same way by faith. There's no nation, no race, no denomination that's going to get you into heaven. You shouldn't look down or envy anybody else. When someone has that attitude, we've got it and you don't, friend, they don't. Right? If, you, if somebody's got that attitude, we got it and you don't, they don't. Because God says there's no prejudice. Thirdly, there's no reason for presumption. Verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold it. There were some people saying, if I'm saved by grace, who cares what I do? I'll live it up. If the law isn't going to get me to heaven, I'll just live with it. Forget the Ten Commandments. Paul said the law is still valid, valid for two reasons. It reveals your consciousness of sin. And secondly, the purpose of the law is to point us toward Christ. Point us toward. We all need Jesus Christ. Amen? The ground in front of the cross is level. We all need him. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want to tell you, you need him. You need him, and you need him today. Now, today, is the day of salvation. There's no guarantee of tomorrow, and I'm not fear-mongering. I'm not trying to throw something in your... I'm just saying, there's no guarantee of tomorrow. Well, Pastor, I just got to work through some things, and... Whatever. I'm just saying. We all need him, amen? And we all need him even after salvation, we still need him. We need his help. We need his presence. Father, I thank you so much for the words of the Apostle Paul here that says, but now. All these things and all these arguments and all the stuff going on, but now. But now you came on the scene, Jesus. Now you provided for us justification, redemption, atonement. You provided for us an escape. You provided for us an escape from eternal death. You provided for us eternal life. You provided a way for us to continually have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, living up to date. You provided us the strength and the help. You provided us with the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to encourage us, to teach us, to train us, you provided for us a voice within our own life to share with us when we have gone astray, when we're allowing self or sin or the enemy to influence us. You provided for us an answer. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, you died for our sin, past, present, and future. And friends, I'd be so remiss if I didn't ask you Probably the most important question ever. Do you know Jesus Christ personally? And by that I mean, have you confessed Jesus Christ to Jesus Christ that you're a sinner? We're all sinners, we read in Scripture. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's only one way to experience the forgiveness of our sin. And that's to recognize that we need a Savior. His name is Jesus. He paid the price for your sin and mine. There's only one way to receive that forgiveness, and that's to ask. And that's to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And when he says, I forgive you, we believe he forgives us. Perhaps you need to pray that prayer this morning and say, Dear Jesus, 
according to your word, I'm a sinner. I'm like everybody else in this room. I've sinned. I've fallen short of your ideal for my life. Gone my own way. I need you, Jesus. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. And in so doing, I'm asking you to give me the strength to turn from those sinful ways. Cleanse me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me to live the life you want me to live. And help me to be sensitive. Times when I want to go my own way, that your Holy Spirit convicts me and I come back on track knowing that you're a God that forgives. I don't have a license to sin so that makes you any better that you continually forgive me, but I want to live with a tender heart, loving you with all of my life. And friend, maybe you need to pray that prayer this morning or one similar and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. The best decision you could ever make. Not the only decision you make because every day you'll make a decision to honor him and to love him and converse with him and talk with him and allow him to speak to you, to lead and to guide you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to demonstrate his love to you and give you the strength to live the life he's chosen for you. And you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, by raising my hand, I am accepting the fact that I need Jesus and I need him today. And I'm praying that prayer or a similar prayer, and I ask you to pray for me as you conclude the service. And you just slip your hand up. Say, that's me, Pastor. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Let me put them down. Anybody else? Father, I thank you for those words of the Apostle Paul, but now. But now. And Lord, I pray that you would so reveal yourself to those praying that prayer this morning. Strengthen them and enable reveal yourself to them. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 We conclude our service this morning. We're going to receive our tithes and offerings, and then we'll.